Buenos dias. <laughs> Welcome to My Lux. I am Rabbi Jeremy Marquis. I am Adir Yolkut. And I am Josh Yukin. We wanted us to thank our uh, our many listeners and uh, give a, a special shout out to Joe Brophy and Rachel Faber for being the two people to tweet at us at mind underscore locks. So please tweet at us or use the hashtag mindlocks. Yeah, and thanks, mom. My mom gave us feedback, and considering that she's like thirty percent of our listening audience think we should take it seriously, she said we need to focus more. So mm-hmm. just putting that out there, mom. You know, I heard you. Thank you for the feedback. Much love. And. The many that Jeremy talked about, many listeners, that's very real in the same way that our president-elect likes to talk about his landslide victory, if you get my drift. Okay. With that note, um, <laughs> Adir, will you uh, start us off on our, on our question of the, of the day? Yes, our question of the day uh, came about as a result of some uh, internal conversations uh, an organization that I am associated with has been having <clears throat> in fallout from the election given the kind of um, majority response of many of, of people in kind of the circles we run in, um, although obviously there are plenty of people who are happy and excited that Donald Trump is president, um, but basically about how should the institution respond um, to various political issues that are springing up as a result of his election, um, kind of those affecting uh, minorities in the country and political debate um, and uh, refugees, immigration, all the stuff you can think of, and, and whether really... Um, religious organizations, given their status of, uh, you know, non given their nonprofit status, how should they tackle that that question? How do we talk about political stuff? So I want to make a, a distinction. Right? We're not going to talk about the legal issues here necessarily. We're not lawyers, but maybe some of the moral concerns or ethical concerns that we might that we might have. Yeah, but I just I, I put it out there just to make people aware of the fact that there's there is it's not just a simple issue of like, is it morally right or wrong, but whether and we don't have to go into it, but that there's another layer of complication for for nonprofit um, organizations. So I think that it's an interesting question, you know. And, and and to me, when I think about it, I think part of it comes from a fear of influence. That there's a concern that if you, as a religious leader, say something from a pulpit in a sermon, that there's like this idea that like what you say might like unfairly influence the people. But to me, that seems like total hubris. Like I don't think like clergy have more influence than like Lindsay Lohan, you know, who, and she can tweet whatever she wants about a candidate. So why can't we as religious leaders also be able to say what, what our opinion is? Like, I don't like, I understand the distinction about like, okay, we, we, you know, we might, we, we receive certain tax breaks for being nonprofits, but like, but like the idea that like, we're actually going to have an impact based on what we say, that's like more significant than like a professional athlete, you know, who, who has so many followers online is going to have seems to me like a little, a little unrealistic. It's interesting you say that because one of the first things I was told by uh, my senior rabbi was that uh, we he asks he likes that each sermon on Friday night kind of falls in the same rubric. It all has to kind of connect to Shabbat, and so I asked him and I said, "Well, that like that feels like it's just going to get very repetitive and boring and whatever after a while." And he said, "Well, well, just remember, no one really listens to what you say, so like one sermon is not going to affect anybody. But if you can give the same kind of sermon." Over and over again, the message will start to sink in. I don't know if I buy that actually, and, and I might just be young and naive and, and like to think that the sermons have more of an effect. But I think it plays into a little bit of what Josh is saying, which is that really what we say is not doesn't have that much of an impact on a regular basis. Perhaps that's why so many rabbis just um, give the same sermon every week. Just putting it out there. Okay, sorry. There's an element of it that rabbis have a voice. 
that might be different than someone else's or rabbi as a representative of an institution versus they themselves. I also want to, I wonder, you know, in, in the case that you brought, Adir, is there a difference between an issue which may or may not be partisan versus a candidate, which by definition is partisan, right? Do I have, can I say you should vote for this person because, uh, you know, of whatever reason, or can you say, I need, I want you to vote for this measure or for this issue for the following reasons. Th- those seem really different to me. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, I'm very much in the school of thought that we should be speaking to issues. You know, I was nervous about it, but I certainly spoke to to the issues of kind of minority rights in the country post-election. And, and I, I made it very clear that I was speaking to everybody in the room. I was speaking to Republicans, Republicans who supported Donald Trump. I was speaking to Democrats who supported, you know, these are issues that we can unite behind. And I think religious institutions have a specific role in addressing those kind of things because there's stuff that we all should be supporting no matter kind of our political affiliation. But obviously I wouldn't have gotten up there before the election to say, you know, you know who to vote for if you believe in such and such things. Like, that's not my role. I guess I'm not convinced that it's like, that, 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 like that's not your role. Like, as religious leaders, we don't have like a moral obligation or a moral imperative to promote certain values which we feel are important. And part of promoting those values is promoting certain measures, certain candidates, certain individuals, and, and movements that really embody those values. Do candidates or people really embody those those values because I think a person can change their mind they can start with one position and end with another we've clearly seen that but issues uh, can be decided on values right I can't say you know Josh Bugan I support you because of my value towards civic responsibility but I can say everyone should have the right to vote because of my value of civic responsibility. Those those feel really different to me. But I, I think about like like an example for me might be something like so. Just in this last election in California, there was Proposition sixty two, which was going to uh, annul the death penalty, and it would retroactively change the the sentence for all the people currently on death row in the Calif- in California and, and give their, give them um, a life sentence instead. And and it, it didn't pass in California. But to me, this is like a very seems like a very specific ballot measure, which I think is very aligned with what our, with what our tradition believes, which is, which is our tradition believes that, that change is possible. And, and it's, you know, I know there are like some minority voices which talk about the death penalty, but overall it seems like the, the Jewish tradition is pretty unanimous about saying like, we, we don't believe really in, in putting people to, to death in terms of like practical, practically doing it. So like for me, this seemed like a very specific ballot measure, which, which was aligned with my own religious values. But, but that's exactly what I was, and that's an issue. Like, that's something that you can speak about uh, from your pulpit as a person representing the tradition who, speak, who thinks the tradition speaks to that specific issue, as opposed to the other conversation we're having, which is about kind of, um, you know, directly supporting a specific candidate. Because it's also, you talked about there's hubris before when rabbis think that, like, what they're saying really affects people and can change people. But then when it comes to the other side of the coin, by being able to say, I think my tradition tells me you should support this candidate, what kind of hubris is that? To think you know what a person's life is like behind their home and what candidate would, would be best for them? Like, that feels like a contradiction to me. I mean, maybe, maybe we could say that, that like clergy or nonprofits can't support measures, ballot measures, which might seem more simple, and candidates you know, might, be, might be more nuanced. It might be harder to say, like, okay, this candidate is clearly aligned with 
this vision that I have. But you know, I I hear you about the hubris thing. Like it, it is hubris either way. Telling anyone like what to vote or how to vote, regardless of who you are, there's a certain amount of like hubris in it. I I also think that there can be more than one way a Jewish institution approaches these things. Right? I am of the opinion that a, a Jewish institution should not tell people what person that they should vote for. But I do feel that a Jewish institution can come in support of an issue. And what, what I mean is that those things don't have to necessarily be in sermons, right? It doesn't have to be the rabbi who's saying, go do this because I think it you know, stands for this. But it could be a small group of people who care about social action who decide you know, that the institution is going to fight for, you know, the example you gave, Josh, you know, a life sentence and, and de- the death penalty, right, where the institution is making a choice, but they are made by a group of individuals versus the rabbi, right, that the rabbi is clearly a part of the institution, but but isn't a representative of every person that that would be obvious. So I, I wonder if a Jewish institution is maybe then obligated to create those kinds of spaces for people to to do activism, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I think I think synagogues can can, as you said, we, and we are having a bit of this internal conversation. Like the different models that a synagogue can exist as in a in a kind of political atmosphere we live in. Like I think synagogues can say we are nonpartisan. We are a place where everybody can come gather. We're not going to make any specific statements. I think the opposite end of that is synagogues basically saying like we are sanctuaries where you can come and like voice your displeasure and we are going to do that and we are going to be a place where that can happen. Um, I think it could be in the middle somewhere like we're going to pick certain issues through some sort of process through which we gather information from our constituents and then decide to focus on those things. What happens when you have constituents who disagree on an issue and both want to do activism. This is what I think about, right? What if, right, using Josh's example, you have a population that says, we want to fight against the death penalty because Jewish tradition, you know, means that. And you have another population that says, no, the death penalty is real in Judaism. It should exist. Should those, let's say, committees in an institution both be supported and acting um, would they would both say is reflective of the Jewish tradition or should they say, all right, because we're equal, we shouldn't, we're not going to act on this. I think they should in the same way when we're talking about um, any sort of conversation, like this is a political conversation that is, is connected to the religious sphere. Cause obviously there are valid points to that argument religiously from the Jewish perspective, at least about the death penalty, let's say. But in the same way that you would provide a forum probably to speak about an issue from both from both sides, I think um, in a synagogue that wants to have that conversation, something like bringing in, um, you know, scholars or experts in the field who can speak to different points and then the rabbi providing some sort of the Jewish voice um, and talking about how the tradition certainly unfolds in a way that, that gives validity to both sides. Like, I think that's a, a good way for a synagogue to be able to speak um, to those topics. And I think it's perfectly fine for the rabbi to say, I fall on one specific side of this, but it's important that we understand the multivocality of this issue. Subjects like education or immigration or, yeah. you know, economic, you know, economic, yeah, economic issues, stuff. right? Bringing yeah. professors or, you know, experts in the field. Right. One of the, one of the kind of offshoots of this conversation that we've been having is that there's a school of thought that thinks that Judaism is not doesn't speak to rights of people it only speaks to responsibilities and if you are of the school of thought that judaism 
doesn't necessarily speak to rights, um, then it's an, then it's an easy. I don't want. This is going to sound like I'm I'm putting a value statement on it, but but you can find your way out of this conversation by saying, well, Judaism can't speak to this because these are not issues that are found within the tradition. I don't. I, I'm not in the school of thought that thinks that. I think Judaism does speak to to rights of people. I think very clearly, both from a from the Torah perspective and then from the rabbinic um, conversation about it. And I think if you're in that stream, then it's easier to say that Judaism demands that we respond to this issue of immigration, whatever it might be. I mean, I think part of the of the power of having like a, a multi thousand year tradition and of having some kind of religious spiritual practice is, is the idea that it sort of can speak to everything. And I think that you know, to me, like to say like, oh, like this thing falls outside the purview of Judaism. This thing falls out of outside of the lens of our of our tradition or of what we as leaders or spiritually engaged people can talk about. Like to me, that's like missing the point. Like, like what's the point of any of this if we like have to limit or, or, or if it's like only, only affects like a very narrow scope of our existence. So that's a really good ending point, I think, uh, for this segment. And we I can, uh, <laughs> a pop, a pop culture piece, something totally related, uh, <laughs> totally related. And, um, Josh, why don't you start us off with the piece of pop culture that, uh, we are going to investigate a little bit this week. All right. So it is uh, a show on HBO that perhaps, many of our fine listeners are familiar with called Westworld. And I guess I just want to begin by talking about my, my, my mixed feelings about the show that initially, like I really wanted to like the show the first couple episodes, like I loved. And then at a certain point, like I re- I realized that it was produced by JJ Abrams who made lost. And if you recall lost, like the first season of lost was like so amazing like it was one of probably one of like the best TV shows of all time, and we all know how it ended, right? Like after that season, it went downhill, and halfway through, I was like, oh, "Are they gonna like resolve any of this? Like none of this really makes sense." Like there was the whole thing about like instead of like you know in Lost, there was like the hatch, the hatch, the hatch. Here it was like there's the maze. There's like all these kind of like vague terminology, and and by the end of the first season, I was like as confused as I was at the end of the first season of Lost, and like none of that was ever rewarded. I was never like brought in into the narrative in a way that made sense so I'm, I'm a little concerned so before we move on for any of our listeners who have not yet seen all of westworld there will likely be spoilers ahead so check the show notes and uh you can skip to the the next section where the the, the time will be be there nice responsible podcasting at its finest so i really liked the show i felt enough of it was tied in a bow for me to feel satisfied, but there were open-ended pieces. There's another season coming, for example. And one of the things that I feel is different about the way Westworld has gone versus other shows is we didn't know very much while the show was happening until pretty much the very end, right? The whole, all of the mysteries that were happening, were we were just totally lost until the very end, I think, where the last episode started to link all of the different pieces together um and that that to me sounded pretty satisfying you know i'm gonna, i'm gonna be a contrarian here on that i actually find I don't, I don't mind as much as josh did that there was all these disparate pieces that were kind of difficult to ascertain i mean i think i read like for each episode three recaps afterwards to try to figure out what the hell was going on um but i actually found some of the big uh reveals here's a spoiler many spoilers coming up so if you're still listening really stop listening now um like the whole 
Dolores existing in two in two plot lines or that Bernard wasn't actually a human. Like on the surface level, you might think, oh my God, I can't believe that. But it was it felt pretty obvious leading up to it, especially if you're reading recaps and, and kind of seeing what was happening on the internet and Reddit was like a great space to try to ascertain this stuff. Like they picked stuff that was easy to figure out, so it made the reveal not as momentous in the end. Green Torah on Reddit. <laughs> I I didn't know. I mean, I didn't read the recaps until the last episode or two yeah. when I was when I felt like okay, I'm I am sufficiently confused that I want to read more up more up more about it. I didn't catch that Dolores was living. You know, we were seeing multiple levels of Dolores's experience. I think part of why that was so successful is because the character didn't doesn't age. Right. Right. This is a this is a not this is not a real person in terms of flesh and blood um but my i mean once again you know how do we define a real person right 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 and that's kind of why that's so effective because like the other characters who she's interfacing with like do age and that's why that that whole twist works because you don't recognize that like that guy billy is also like the guy with the black hat who's kind of like a jerk i like so so the reveals actually didn't bother me I, i i actually like the thing with bernard i thought was like really well handled like 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 when he goes down there and she's like, and she's like, oh, what's in this door? And he's like, what door? And then you're like, oh, he can't see something. And then like with the, like, that was awesome. But I, I guess my concern is more like the very end with like, wait, is this part of Ford's plan? Is it not part of Ford's plan? Like, do they have consciousness? Do they not have consciousness? Like, these are kind of big, big issues, which I wanted to see more, like more of a definitive statement. Like, are they actually like independent thought, thoughtful creatures or, or are they just sort of doing what they're programmed to do by Ford? I thought... The answer is yes to both. The whole part of them having this maze where they're trying to uncover their own consciousness means that some of them are conscious, some of them are self-aware, and some aren't. That, that to me, I, it might be a nice metaphor for the rest of us, right? How many of us are really self-aware and are taking the time to, to listen to ourselves and how many of us aren't? I'm not aren't? self-aware. <laughs> um, and but at the same time, you had characters who went around the maze, right? You had Maeve who didn't have the inner voice monologue situation that Dolores did, yet it still became self-aware in a way that the other hosts didn't. Although we don't know in the end, specifically the Maeve plotline, like she has this moment where she's thinking she's doing this independent act, and then has this conversation with Ford where she realizes, oh my God, am I still doing what I've been programmed to do? And then she gets off the train and goes back into the park. But even then, it speaks to Josh's point, which I think is a good part of the show, because you're still unsure, what is she doing? Is she going by how she's been programmed, or is she going independent? And I also think it'd be a good point to start talking about this final episode, which is really the larger, the way we can connect this to some sort of religious conversation-ish, although not to say we haven't been speaking religiously about the show, um, the bicameral mind which was the title of the last episode and kind of um, how it relates to being a person of faith uh, in relationship with God in the world, I think could be interesting to talk about. Yeah. So, so this whole idea is based on um, a book by a, a psychologist named Julian Jaynes who wrote a book called the origin of consciousness in the breakdown of the bicameral mind. And in this book, he sort of posits that, um, that basically like early human beings, what they thought was God, like that voice of God that they heard was actually the two hemispheres of the brain communicating, right? So, the, so like they would hear one hemisphere, another hemisphere, and they, they, they mistook the fact that like this was coming internally for a voice coming outside. And what he writes is that as time evolved, 
the, the, the membrane connecting the two hemispheres of the brain actually expanded. So for us, for, for modern people, we no longer hear the voice of God. We no longer hear prophecy. We're sort of like a known trope in rabbinic literature. And the reason why, according to Julian James, we no longer hear the voice of, of prophecy or the voice of God is because we now have an overdeveloped like membrane between the two hemispheres. So we're able to distinguish like what, like, like the two voices in our, in our head are, are all sort of um, come like, like are, are unified. And he actually cites his evidence in the book somewhat dubiously. He, he, they've done studies of people who are schizophrenic and people with certain kinds of um, mental disorders who, who he, who they found have the same underdeveloped area in the brain, which he says is why they hear voices is because it's actually the voices of the two hemispheres communicating to one another in the same way that early people in, in early cultures heard this voice and, and created these mythologies of religion. But I think it creates like, um, you know, like a big problem religiously, like, did anyone ever hear from God? Like, basically what he's saying is that like Moses, the reason why Moses, whether or not we believe Moses is real or not, as like an example, like the reason why Moses heard God was not because Moses had like some great revelation or was like a higher human being, but was basically because like he was like a less evolved human being with like uh, a dysfunction in his brain, which eventually over time we we evolved to to fix. I think for me, because of the way I believe in God and I struggle with the idea of a personal God versus some sort of broader, you know, force type of, of, of God. It, there's a part of me that's really sad by the idea that God would really just a manifestation of, of the human brain. And yet I think there's something really convincing about it. Our, as we evolved, you know, our, our type, the way our brains thought, the way our brains functioned really, really did change and, and changed our culture and society as a result of that, right? That we had hugely religious, where every institution was a religious institution. And now in the modern society, it, it actually doesn't really function that way. And there's a, that, that's really interesting to see like how the brain evolved impact impacted the broader society. Those are the two things that, that I pull out from it, right? My own personal faith journey and also the impact to the outside. Yeah. And, and I, and I would agree with you. I mean, just that it is, I think both depressing and also can be comforting. I mean, I know I've spoken about that with people who like do not believe in God, but might believe in the power of religion. Like this is sort of a way of understanding religion as sort of being like we can find value in re religion, whether or not there was like some mystical basis for it. You know, we can sort of look at it as a civilization or as a way of uh, manifesting identity or a way of creating rituals that allow us to have meaning. And this can exist outside of the system of God. But there is something that's also like very clinical and very cold in, in sort of viewing like manifestations that people have had with God as being simply like people misunderstanding what's going on in their voice, in, in their brain internally. I'm not a hyper rationalist at all, but I feel like this is like a very it's a very useful tool to help solve basically all problems that religion poses to somebody who's hyper rationalist to be able to say, okay, all these encounters I can look back on, um, all these moments where I normally would say that God person, that God thing doesn't exist. There's there's there can't be such events happening. Um, and if you're able to say, well, okay, these are simply attempts to capture the internal dialogue of a human being of a kind of this inner dialogue manifesting in real form, then it helps. And it's probably comforting in some way. And, and you can find certain, certain ambiguities in text. Like I'm thinking right now, at the end of, of a portion of when Moses comes down from the mountain, and the text is very unclear about, it says something like he needed him, 
using the, the normal, the normative language that the Torah talks about. And it's unclear whether it's God who needs Moses or Moses who needs God in that moment. Um, and if you imagine this conversation simply all taking place inside Moses's head between these two hemispheres, then it, then it helps frame that much in a much more, in a much more um, kind of successful way. Before we move on to our, our, uh, our next segment, would you suggest or uh, encourage people to watch Westworld? Yeah, I would. That's it? Just, no, just simple yes, <laughs> yeah, I like it. I mean, look, like, given the caveats that I said, that like, look, if you were a fan of Lost, let's say, in the beginning, but by the end you felt totally burned and like frustrated and like honestly a little heartbroken and betrayed, you know, because it started out with so much potential, like, but it's like a big question, you know, like, are you, are you able to love again in life after, after having one, after suffering one heartbreak, you know, like, can you trust again? And, um, I want to believe that JJ Abrams is going to pull this off. I think he's made some great, some great works. I thought Super 8 was like a phenomenal film, for instance. Hmm. So, you know, I, I, I want to be in that relationship. I want to give it a chance. And if you want to believe in love, sure, check it out. It's like the strangest endorsement ever, but yeah. Uh, I'll say also yes. For one reason, you know, it's another show where people can talk condescendingly and pedantically about how great this show is and throw around various theories, as we are doing right now. And B, I'm, I'm always in support of people watching more television. I think like it's hard for us to have conversations with people in real life, but when we can ground ourselves in things that really matter, um, that's important. Uh, and I think it's just, I think it's good TV. Whether it has its flaws is true. There's no perfect TV show besides The Wire. And I think it's going to, I'm interested to see where the plot lines take us next, next year out of the park, see a little bit more of what's happening in the world, um, see what happens to Maeve and Dolores is Wyatt and how that works out. I'm excited watch the show check it i'm also a, a huge fan of the show uh mostly because i love almost any type of science fiction and uh I, I think it's great storytelling and i like anthony hopkins portrayal he's just just totally rocks it and it's creepy and awesome and uh i also support people watching more television for better or for worse just briefly what voice would you rather have as god anthony hopkins or morgan freeman that is a tough decision but good Good option either way you go, I think. But which portrayal of God is is one kinder or two more more uh, in, aligned with like the biblical idea of God? I would say Anthony Hopkins is a biblical God that I don't want. Uh, by the way, I'm looking at J.J. Abrams' filmography. He also made 10 Cloverfield Lane, which I thought was super Ooh, dope. So, great movie. Um, highly recommend that if you haven't seen it. J.J., come on the pod next week. We'd love to have you. Tweet us. <laughs> um, I definitely would take Morgan Freeman. Um, that That cool cool deep voice uh i yeah. would find pretty soothing uh if i in fact encountered the divine i think that would be really scary and morgan freeman's voice would would make me feel better about it as the late great Stuart scott once said cool as the other side of the pillow like morgan freeman's voice nice nice <laughs> so we'll uh we'll move to our our third segment here of, of just a, a favorite piece of of culture that we encountered this this past week that we want to either encourage people to to listen to or watch or uh, go and see uh, Adir, why don't you start us off? Well, I'll tell you what the low point of my week was at first. After falling to one of our podcasters last week in the fantasy football playoffs, in my other league, I also lost. And so I'm really reeling from two terrible disappointments. Josh was talking about heartbreak before. I am feeling it. But... I am hoping that on the next podcast, we talk about my high point moment of the week, which is making my way through Black Mirror. Uh, I know I'm late on it. 
and people have already been having these conversations, but I find myself with my jaw uh, kind of lowered every episode. It's just good and, um, and it's right on point for so many of the issues we're facing in society and there's a lot of twists and turns that you don't expect. And that's been a really fun uh, kind of distraction from midwinter or the beginning of winter malaise. Josh? So I would say, and this is sort of um, uh, an interesting choice, but I watched Sausage Party this week, <laughs> which is actually, I mean this totally seriously, it's some deep Torah. Not as funny as it could be. Um, it's pretty funny in moments. A lot of it is, is, as you would expect, pretty stupid, but I, I found it to be actually a pretty interesting take and critique and re-evaluation of religion. Um, there's a lot of great, like, parable. I think, for understanding faith in a confusing world with suffering and pain. Nice. Um, I had the uh, the absolute pleasure to see Star Wars A Rogue One, uh, or Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, however the title goes, uh, last night. Anything with spaceships is pretty much my, my thing, but it was uh, a great story, and I thought it was a really nice departure from the Skywalker-centered star wars stories and it really got us gave uh, an opportunity to see the broader galaxy the broader universe that that star wars lived in and it feels it felt really lived in and i really really liked that and there were a ton of great star wars easter eggs you know hidden moments and characters that uh, i'm not going to say here because it's still it's still pretty new yeah we've um, already spoiled one show we won't spoil exactly exactly did you how, how would you how would it fall in your rankings? I, I assume you're in the school, although I'm not as fundamentalist about this. That removes one and one to three from the ranking system. So do you feel like it's stacked up to the you know four, five, six, as it were, and also compared to last year's uh, what's it called, Force Awakens? I am surprisingly not a fundamentalist about this. I think nice. that the first episodes one two and three are mediocre pieces of television but really important parts to the story so if i could pull out the parts of those movies that were really good then i would like they're okay you know the parts of the stories how the characters came to be um there's also a bunch of other uh star wars uh television and stories that are out there that are they're also really good that are worth listening to and and reading and watching Star Wars, the Rogue One was pretty high up there in terms of the quality. And I read this article yesterday about how people should watch it. Like now this movie changes the watching order. Like do you watch Rogue One, which takes place before episode four, A New Hope? Should you watch it before episode four? Do you watch episode four, five, six, and you go back and then you go forward? And I think I'm a proponent of watching it in the way the story is told. You would start with a Rogue One, uh, Rogue One and watch episodes four, five, six, and then seven, because then the story flows really, really smoothly. Uh, and I, I, I'm i a huge fan. Um, I, I walked out of the movie and I said, I can't wait to go and see that again. So uh, to wrap it up, uh, what, what is uh, our, our Shabbat takeaway? What, what, what can be a positive message we can send out to our listeners? Today is, is Wednesday, but if, if our listeners are listening to it on a Friday, what, what can bring them into Shabbat in a positive way? Hmm. You know, often in life there are lows, and sometimes we have to go through those lows to go go up high. And sometimes there are a series of lows and highs, and lows and highs. And maybe that's just life. But I think um, you know we have to kind of ride those waves. For a deer, the lows were losing in fantasy football twice. 
Totally. You've really ruined my week. Um, I'll, I'll just say briefly, I'm going out of town tonight. I'm going outside of the country. It's Hanukkah that starts, so I'm bringing a menorah with me. And, I, you know, I'm a little nervous about it. I'm always nervous. I'm a person, honestly, who gets nervous about being, um, like, outwardly Jewish in places where I don't necessarily feel so comfortable. Yeah. Um, so I think I'm, I'm trying to confront that. And I think the general idea of, of working our ways out of our own comfort zones um, not necessarily just about Hanukkah, but really just about any way that manifests in our life is a, is a thing I'm trying to uh, tackle this week. And I hope it's something that other people can tackle and we can try to figure out how to do it together. I think you should wrap your Hanukkah in a Christmas sweater in your bag, just in case that you get stopped by TSA or anyone. Good call. I uh, had a chance to learn some Talmud and some Shulchan Arach, you know, a code of Jewish law with my fifth, sixth and seventh grade students in the last week or two. And despite the fact that I think kids get a bad rap, they were super into it and they were excited to learn and they remembered stuff when we reviewed it, you know, a week later. And that made me feel really hopeful about the power of Jewish learning and the power of Torah and the intellectual curiosity of, of kids today. And, uh, I'm really I'm pumped to teach them again soon and um, that everyone should feel like they have access to the Talmud and Shulchan Aruch and Torah and that, you know, this is uh, theirs to own. You know, every, all of us have a, a chance to own a piece of Torah. And uh, that made me feel really hopeful. Love it. Great. And um, I want to give a big shout out to my main man, Marcus Rubenstein. I'm loving the I'm loving the, the feedback we're getting from people. Keep it coming. Tweet us. Thank you for uh, joining us on our uh, second episode. Join us next week. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. Happy Kwanzaa. Anything you're celebrating, we're giving you happiness. Happy holidays. Sending love.